Grab your Bibles and let's go to the book of Psalms. And we're going to be in uh, the 92nd Psalm. The 92nd Psalm this morning. When you get there, if you have the means and you're able, let's stand and give reverence to reading the Word of God, please. As I always say, if you need to remain seated, that's fine. Psalm 92, we'll read the entire psalm. If you'll notice at the top, it says, How great are your works! It's a psalm. And not just a psalm, it's a song. It's a psalm that was meant to be sung. And not just any time, but specifically for the Sabbath day. That's important. Verse 1, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to sing praises to Your name, O Most High. It is good to declare Your steadfast love in the morning. And it is good to declare Your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp and to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are so very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, yet they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, and all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit, even in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. You can be seated. G. Wilbanks, will you take us, Lord, in prayer one more time, please? Amen. Amen. So notice again that this is a song for the Sabbath. Now, if you remember in the Old Covenant, the Sabbath day was a day that God commanded, and He had several reasons for this day. Uh, One of the reasons, if you'll look at Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, one of the reasons is because it was meant to be a day of rest. And notice what He says here, Six days shall work be done, 
But on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. And notice what it says next. It is a holy convocation. Now, a convocation basically meant an assembly. And so one of the things that we learn from Scriptures like this and other Scriptures that speak of the Sabbath is that the Sabbath was not just a day of rest, even though it began that way. Remember in the Garden of Eden after uh, God created everything in six days and then on the seventh day He rested. And that was the creation of the Sabbath. And Adam and Eve and, and all creation observed the Sabbath at that moment, but it, it ever expanded into more and more reasons to why He gave us a Sabbath day. And one of the reasons was for rest, of course. Six days, you can do your work. And then on the seventh day, the body needs time to rest. And so it was meant to be a time that mankind can take a rest from the work that is to be done in the same way that God did and provided us an example of. But it is also a holy convocation. It is a time not to rest, but to assemble together. As believers, it is a holy convocation. You shall do no work on this day, and it is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. So we get two things about the Sabbath here. Number one, it is for rest. Number two, it was about a time of the people of God gathering together. And we see examples of this in other places that we won't go to today. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, it expanded even more. As God began to deliver in salvation, the Sabbath day was a day of rest. It was a day of assembling together. But then there was a purpose for assembling together. Notice what he says. You shall remember. So the next purpose we're going to see is it was a day to remember something. What are we going to remember? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So there again we see that the Sabbath day, a time of rest, so a good day for you to rest. But in that rest, you gather together as God's people and you remember. You remember specifically that you were once a slave that you were once held captive by your sin that was in your heart and in your mind, and God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm delivered you and brought you out of that land of sinfulness, and He saved you. And it was a day for you to remember the Lord's salvation. So we see three reasons primarily right now for the Sabbath. Number one, rest. Number two, we see that it was a time to gather together, a holy convocation. Number three, it was a time to remember the great works of God that He has done for you, specifically in your salvation. Alright? And then, you'll notice that in the New Covenant, we are not commanded to keep this as a law. Instead, we continue to do this because it's in our heart to do these things. We don't do it because now God has to command us to do it. We do it because we're under His grace. And because of His grace, we do these things. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. 
He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, or slavery to sin, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you weren't children of God. But notice what happened. God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. And here's how He did it. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with all its legal demands. You know what He's talking about there? The law. The law. Including, thou shalt keep the Sabbath and it shall be a holy day. And we broke it so many times. Christ come and He forgave it all. And He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with this legal demands. How did He do this? Well, this He set aside. How did He set it aside? He nailed it to the cross. He took all the things that God said, Thou shalt not, and we shout. (laughs) And He took all of those, and He nailed them to the cross, and by doing that, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He disarmed Satan because the only thing Satan had against you was that he would say, God, O'Fagan was supposed to do this and this and this and this, and he didn't do any of it. In other words, he took the law of God and he said, look at where we have broken it. And Jesus came and He takes all of that record of death that is against us, He nails it to the cross, and He disarms the rulers and authorities, and He puts them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So in Jesus, He comes and He fulfills all the law where we fail. And then He takes it and He nails it to the cross and Satan comes and he says, God, they've broken this and they've broken this and they deserve death and they deserve hell. And then God says, yeah, but look what my son did. And He puts them to an open shame on the cross and He disarms all of the rulers and the authorities that are trying to come against us. So because Jesus has fulfilled the law in every way, disarmed it, set it aside... Because of that, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink like the old law said, eat this, don't eat this, do this, don't do that. Don't let them question you with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. See, this is where the Seventh-day Adventists don't get it. And I'm not here to bash them. I believe they're Christians. But this is one thing they don't get. They don't get to understand that we don't have to keep that law of we have to not do work from uh, sundown Friday all the way to Sunday morning and and we have to meet on Saturday for nothing but a day of rest and, and we do this because it's the law of God. Guys, Jesus has fulfilled that. And He took it away. And now we do this today out of the grace that God has given us. See, these things are a shadow of the things to come. All they did was point toward the rest that Christ was going to give us. They pointed toward the salvation that God was going to give us. So when they kept this Sabbath, they were saying, God, we celebrate You today, we rest, we remember, but one day there is coming one that is going to give us ultimate rest from our works. One day there is coming one that is going to, with with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, deliver us from all of our land of slavery. One day He's coming. And guess what? Today we're not back there. Today we're looking back and we're saying, God, thank You that You came. 
God, thank You that You fulfilled the Sabbath. God, thank You that You kept the law. God, thank You that You paid the debt that I could not pay. And so the substance belongs to Christ. And what we need to understand is even though we have a song for the Sabbath today, I don't want you to think that we are still under the law to keep the Sabbath. I want you to understand Jesus has fulfilled it. But that does not mean that it's still not a good thing to have a day of rest. It does not mean that it's still not good to come together and to rejoice in the Lord, to come together and remember the salvation that He has done. But we see the example of the New Testament Christians in the New Covenant. They started meeting on the day of resurrection, on Sunday. Instead of meeting on Saturday, the example they gave, they met on Sunday. In um, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until... I don't want to hear another word from my wife about how long I preach. <laughs> Thus says the Lord... That's all I'm saying. On the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. They came together on Sunday. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, we see the same example there. And you don't have to go there, but if you wanted to see it, again, the example we see is that they continue to meet on the first day of the week. But by the time of Paul's day, some people had already started forsaking this. You remember the Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25? Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but instead encourage one another, exhort one another, and even more as you see the day approaching and drawing near. And so we see the example was not that we follow a Sabbath day because it's a law for us to do, but we still come together for a day of rest. We still come together for a day of a holy convocation where we gather together and we still come together to remember the great works of God, especially His mighty hand and outstretched arm that He delivered us with in Christ Jesus on the cross. And we come together and we rejoice about it and we sing in it. And so that's what we get today in Psalm 92. We see a song that was written for the purpose of our holy convocation where we assemble together and we see at least some of the things that was expected for us to do during a worship service and a day of remembrance, specifically a Sabbath day. In verses 1 through 3, we get, if you're keeping notes, in verses 1 through 3, you could bracket this and call it the reason we assemble. The reason we assemble. Why do we do this? Are we just here today because it's tradition? Because how many of you know, Sometimes we just come to church because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes we wake up in the morning and we go, oh man, I really don't feel like going to church this morning. This morning I woke up, I got up, got me a shower, and I went right back to bed. And then finally I, th I said, I have got to get up. Normally I'll get up, sit with my coffee, and I'll study, and I'll pray, and I'll get prepared for Sunday morning. This morning I went back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I did get up, I normally only drink decaf because caffeinated coffee gets me like this right here. 
But this morning, I couldn't get going, no matter how hard I tried. And so I went in there, I got some of Chassis coffee, which is the high test stuff. It's the good stuff. And I got some of Chassis coffee, and I sit at the, uh, at the, at the uh, supper table where I do my study, and, and I just drink that coffee. And so I'm ready for you this morning. But y'all know how it is. There are some times that we just do it because this is what we're supposed to do. All right? And so there is a real reason why we assemble here. Notice what he says in verse 1. The first reason we assemble is because it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good. It's a good thing to come and give thanks to God. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, that we should give thanks in all circumstances. No matter what it is, because how many of you know that even in your times of trials and times of hard times, you are still learning and God is still growing you and God is still working and God is still teaching you something. And so there is reason to give thanks to God in all circumstances of our life. But the other reason is because the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from where? It comes from God. Every good and perfect gift you have comes from God. If you have anything good in your life at all this morning, anything, there is reason for you to give thanks. And it is good for you to do that. Psalm chapter 16 verse 2 says, I have no good apart from you. None. I have no good apart from God. At nighttime, whenever we get ready to go to the Lord in prayer, my little boy, he'll start praying. And, and the first time I heard it, I got, I got a little tickled. But the more I hear him pray, the more I... I appreciate this prayer. But he'll pray, and every night, one of the things he'll pray is he'll say, uh, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for oxygen. I did the same thing. First time I heard it, I chuckled. And then I began to think about it. That's right. That's right. Something as simple as oxygen. Do you not know that the Lord should have killed you in your sleep last night? That's what He should have done. That's what I deserve. He should have took me out while I slept, or even better than that, on my way to church this morning, He should have wiped me out. But He didn't. Instead, you know why I'm able to stand here before you and do this? I take that breath because it came from Him. And it is good to give thanks for everything that the Lord has given to you. The next reason we see, we'll go a little quicker through this. It is also good to sing praises. So we assemble together to give thanks. And one of the ways we do this is by singing praises. We sing to God. The Bible tells us that, and it's inspired by God, but it tells us over and over again, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing a new song to the Lord. I love the first song they sung this morning. I was actually going to sing that again this morning. And just like last week, they Chris sung one that, and it's just funny how that how that works out. You can ask my wife. I listened to it all day in the car yesterday because I was getting it in my head, getting ready to sing it. And then I come in here and the words pop up on the screen. And we've never sung that here before, I don't think, have we? It was a new song. And I sit there and when it popped up, I looked at Chastity and I just laughed. That was the song that I was going to sing this morning. And so we are commanded over and over to sing to the Lord, to sing a new song to Him. But I love what Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says, because this is why we sing. 
He says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you or He will calm all your fears by His love. And notice what it says next. He will exult over you with what? You want to know why we sing? Because our God is a singing God. You want to know one of the ways that God expresses His emotion over you? God expresses His love over you. God sings about you. God sings. And if God sings and you were created in His image and God uses singing to express emotion, what do you think He gave you singing for? To do the same thing. And we sing. Anybody in here ever been going through a tough time and there was a song that just spoke to you? There was a song that just spoke to you. Or you're going through, if you're a teenager in here, how many of y'all, how many of y'all remember what was your song? Um, uh, Heidi and Jason, what was y'all's song? You remember y'all's song? Yeah, they've been married too long. They're too old. But I could get one of these younger ones in here that they could tell me, this is our song. You know, and so we, we always have a song for something to be able to express our deepest emotions, whether it's the greatest love that we've ever felt or it's the greatest hurt that we've ever experienced. There's usually a song that helps us to be able to express that emotion in some way. And so it is good to come together and sing praises to God because God is a singing God. Then in verse 2 we see, it is also good that in our songs, as we give thanks and as we sing, we don't just give thanks in general. Yes, we can. Thank you for oxygen. And God, thank you for a house to live in and a bed to sleep in. And God, thank you for food to eat. And God, thank you for my children. And thank you for all the blessings you've given me. But ultimately, one of the greatest reasons we praise Him is specifically because of His, look what it says here in verse 2, to declare, to proclaim the steadfast love of God and to declare or proclaim the faithfulness of God. And you know, ultimately what we see here is the only reason we have anything from God is because of His steadfast love. That's it. It's because of His mercy and His grace that you have anything. And here specifically you're going to see that this psalmist is actually talking about the new life that he has that God has given him new life. He compares what God is going to do to evildoers to what God has done for him. God, this is what you do to evildoers, and this is what they're like. But God, what you've done in my life through your steadfast love and through your faithfulness, this is what it's like. And they use these uh, metaphors to, uh, or these similes to, to describe it. But he says, in our thankfulness, the reason we assemble is to declare the steadfast love of God and to declare the faithfulness of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, we see that the whole reason God saved us... Y'all listen to this. This is important. The whole reason God saved you is so that you would declare how great His love is. One day when you're in heaven, what is going to be the greatest display of the glory of God is the fact that you are there. The whole creation, the new creation, all the angels are going to look at you and they're going to marvel because you stood in the face of God and said, God, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. I can live my life on my own 
a created being. You stood before your Creator and you rebelled against Him, and yet He saved you instead of destroying you. Look what it says. And God raised us up with Jesus and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did God raise you up? Why did God seat you with Jesus? Listen to this closely. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in the kindness that He has shown towards you in Jesus Christ. You don't know why you're in heaven? You're in heaven so that you and everything else around you can look at you and go, can y'all look at the kindness of God? That's what it means when he says, so that he might show. You know what it means to show something? Anybody ever went to show and tell as a kid in school? You bring something, you show and you tell about it. God is going to show you in heaven. And all heaven is going to look at you and say, will y'all look at the grace of God? Will y'all look at the steadfast love of God? I mean, Vance Chapman made it. (laughs) He made it! Was it because of anything He did? It shows the greatness and the kindness of God. And so in our assembly, in our Sabbath day, we come together and we sing and we give thanks, and we specifically sing praises to Him about His steadfast love and about His mercy. Guys, if the gospel ever gets old to you, you don't understand the gospel, and you don't understand what you deserve. That's just the truth of it. You ought to be able to hear the gospel day after day, and the only thing it does for you is go, God, Your grace... Your kindness in what you have done for me. I can't, I can't understand it. But God, I praise you this morning and I sing praises to your name because no matter, even though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. It is more. It is stronger than darkness. It is new every morning. Thank You, God, for Your mercy, Lord. Your mercy is more. We declare the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. Verse 3, look what he says next. Not only do we sing, not only do we give thanks and praise Him for His mercy and for His grace, but we do it in verse four or verse 3, to the music of the lute, which was a ten-string instrument of some kind, they believe, and the harp to the melody of the lyre. And so ultimately we see that God created music for it to go along with our singing, to express the thanks and the praise that we give Him. And so it's good to see people like Chris and Dale up here with their talent and the ability that God gave them to be able to join us in song and accompany us so that as we give thanks and we praise, we find even more ways to express the emotions. Because let me tell you something, sometimes words ain't enough, is it? Sometimes you just don't have the words. But something about the music, it expresses it in a way that you can't with words. Something about the singing 
expresses it in a way that you can't. And so we gather together to sing praises, to give thanks, to praise Him for His mercy and grace, and we do it to the sound of music. Verses 4 through 5, if you're taking notes, bracket this as the reason why we sing. The reason why we sing. Notice the first word of verse 4 is for. This is why we give thanks. This is why it's good. This is why we praise You. This is why we declare Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. For You, O Lord, have made me glad. Lord, You have made me glad by Your work. At the work of Your hands, I sing for joy. And so ultimately, this is a Christian or a child of God that understands what it means to be saved. You want to know why? Listen, can, can I be your pastor this morning? You want to know why you don't want to come to church a lot of Sundays? You want to know why you don't want to sing praises to Him? You, you, don't, you want to know why when there's a song that expresses the truth about God and His mercy is more, you don't really feel anything with it, it don't really do anything for you, and you walk out of here going, yeah, they didn't really sing the song I like to sing this morning. You want to know why you do that? Because the work of God has not made you glad. It's not made you shout with joy. You have not yet come to a place that you truly understand what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You don't get it yet. And you ought to be praying this morning saying, God, I want the truth from Your Word to strike something in me that just wants to praise You. I want the truth of Your Word to strike something in you that whether it's a new song or whether it's a Scripture that I've heard a hundred times before, when I hear the truth about You, it makes me glad. It makes me joyful with everything in me so that I want to sing praises because if it makes you glad, if His work makes you joyful, you will want to assemble together. You will want to praise God together. And so... That's the reason why we sing in verses 4. And then he says it again in verse 5. He says, God, how great are You? Your works have made me glad. And then he goes on further and he says, how great they are! I'm so glad that I've grown in my Christian faith to really understand just how great God's works are. There was a time in my Christian life that I didn't always get it. That it wasn't always here or here. But today I'm so thankful that when I hear a truth about God and I hear His mercy is more, I can say, yeah, it is. Oh, I'm a witness to the fact that His... I'm a testimony to the fact that His mercy is more. That even though our sins are many, oh, His mercy is so much more. And it makes me glad and I shout for joy. In verses 6-9, through if you're taking notes again, this is the result of those who don't recognize and don't understand His works. The ones that don't want to sing, the ones that don't want to praise, the ones that don't get it, it is probably because they don't believe. And if that is the case, this is the result of those that don't get it. In verse 6, notice what he says next. The stupid man cannot know. Now this is not an insult. It's not. This means literally that he don't have the knowledge. He don't get it. He can't know this. And the fool can't understand it. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 21, we see this very clearly. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Again, instead of exulting in it, instead of praising Him for it, they suppress it. And notice what it says. The reason God is angry about it, the reason why His wrath is revealed over you suppressing the truth, is because what can be known about God is plain to you. God, it ain't, guys, it ain't rocket science. It really ain't. You are to know how bad you are. You are to know the thoughts that enter your mind. You are to know the things that are in your heart. See, we like to turn on the TV and we like to look at the world and go, oh my goodness, it's so evil. It's so evil. They are so evil. You know what you ought to do? That's right. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Because His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. You have no excuse to not honor God, to not thank Him, to not see who He is and to praise Him for it. But although they knew God, because it was plain to them, they did not honor Him as God, they did not give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their what? Foolish hearts were darkened. And so we see the result of those that don't recognize Him and won't understand this and don't want to praise Him. The result is that they're stupid, not an insult. It's plain to them. They ought to see it, but they don't. And the result is they're foolish. They're foolish because they ought to be able to see it. They ought to be able to understand, at least if nothing else, His eternal nature and His divine power. Alright, and the next thing we see in verse 7, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. You may look at the world today and you may see that even people that are sinners... They sprout like grass. Even people who are wicked sometimes, you look at it and you go, I, 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 I love the way we think sometimes. We look at people like Brother Nick and we say, God, why in the world would you do that? Nick was so good and Nick did this and Nick did this. And I get that because I, this is the age old thing. We all look at that and go, God, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous perish? That's the age old question. But you want to know the answer to that? There are no righteous. There are only wicked. Nick too. Nick too. Me too. That's what we are. Why do the righteous prosper and the why do the righteous perish and the wicked prosper? Because there are no righteous. There is only one righteous. And we all deserve to perish. But by the grace of God, He has His common grace that we all get to enjoy. Remember what He said, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, I believe it, or 7, I believe it was. He said, God makes His sun shine on the just and the unjust alike. Just like the sun comes up on you, it comes up on those who are unjust as well. And there's a common grace that God allows as He waits for people to repent and to turn back to Him. And so, they don't understand. These wicked people don't understand that even if they gain the whole world, they will ultimately be doomed to destruction forever. Read that verse again, verse 7. 
Guys, listen, you don't want to come, you don't want to worship, you don't want to assemble, you don't want to declare His praise. Let me be your pastor this morning. Can I? I'm not getting down on you. You don't disappoint me if you show up or don't show up. It's not about me. It's not about Nick. We come here to declare His steadfast love, His faithfulness. And when you don't understand that it's good, and you don't have a gladness inside of you that desires to do this, what you have to understand is that even if you gain the whole world, and you spend your life trying to gain the whole world, even if you gain it all, you're doomed for destruction, and they don't understand it. If they did understand it, and they saw that doom is coming, you know what they would do? They would look at the work of God and they would be glad. And they would rejoice in it. And they would praise Him for it. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? <clears throat> Verses 10-15. through 15. The result of those who recognize and believe His work. The result of those who do recognize and believe in His work. Notice what He says in uh, verse 10. Or actually, back up in verse 9 for just a minute, just to follow through. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So the end result, remember he looked and he compared them to grass, and grass in this time sprouted up in the morning, but in this culture, by the evening sun, it withered away. So it looked for a time like it's going to flourish, but it doesn't flourish for long and it withers away. Alright? But, look what He does to, to the ones that believe in verse 10. But you have exalted My horn. Now the reason they use horn here is they compared the horn of an animal to their strength, to the life that was in them. It was, it was where their strength lied. And so He said, you have exalted My strength, My life. What is in Me like that of a wild ox. Now, if you have the King James Version, and if for all y'all kids that are listening in here, this is where the Bible actually talks about it being a unicorn. You have exalted, you have exalted my strength, my life, my horn, like that of a wild unicorn. But what we learn about this animal, if you go with me to Job 39, verse 9 through 12, it tells us about this animal, and it's extinct today, but God describes it like this. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return to your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? This is the animal that he's talking about. It can't be tamed. Its strength was so strong, you can't put ropes on it and bind it. You can't put a wooden furrow on it. You can't put a yoke on it. No matter what you do, you can't tame this animal. This animal is so strong, it can't be contained. And that's what a believer experiences when God causes you to be born again. And He gives you new life. There is something inside of you that you will charge the gates of hell with a water pistol. And you can take it down. 
You'll knock on every door. You'll tell everybody you know. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. You have exalted my strength like that of a wild ox. And then he says in verse 10, You have refreshed me like being anointed with fresh fine oil. In Luke chapter 7 verse 4, the Bible tells us that Jesus was talking to a Pharisee here and a woman had just anointed His feet with oil. Y'all remember that story? But notice what Jesus said to the Pharisee. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with Him earnestly saying, Is He worthy to have you do this for Him? Did I give you the right Scripture? No, I didn't. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what the Pharisee said to Jesus. I gave him the wrong one. The Scripture I'm looking for says this. He says, when I came into this house, you didn't anoint my head with oil, you didn't give me a kiss on the cheek, but this woman has not ceased to anoint my feet and, and, and to kiss me since she has came in here. The point was this. It was customary in this day and time that when a journey, when a, when a um, traveler came in from a journey and he came in as an honored guest to your house, he had been in the hot sun all day. And one of the things that refreshed him and made his face shine was whenever they anointed his head with oil. And it brought refreshment. And it made them feel... It's kind of like, you ever had a hard day at work and uh, when you come in, you take a hot shower? And there's nothing like just taking you a good warm shower and, and, and relaxing and refreshing you and making you feel... This was a very similar thing back then. And so here, this psalmist uses the same analogy and he says, God, You have strengthened me. You have refreshed me. And You've strengthened me like that of a wild ox. You've refreshed me like having my head anointed with fine oil. And so then he moves on down to verse 12 and notice what he says next. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. Now you remember how the wicked flourished? You remember how the one that didn't believe flourished? He flourished like grass. And what did grass do? It withered by that evening. But the palm tree on the other hand, let me tell you just a little bit about the palm tree. The palm trees were beautiful trees with straight bodies and they spread out at the top. I am describing a palm tree, okay? That's all I'm saying. They produced a great shade. And when the traveler would come under the palm tree, he would sit under that shade and he would take his rest and he would be refreshed. But they lived to be 200 years old or more. And they got a fruit that was produced on them that the older this tree got, the sweeter this fruit became. Literally, the longer this tree lived, the more fruit it produced, the sweeter the fruit became. It produced these clusters of dates that were very sweet and pleasant to eat. And the travelers loved to eat off of these trees. But he says here that they flourish, the righteous does, not like grass that withers, but like a palm tree that lives for so long and just spreads out at the top and travelers find their rest in under them. They find refreshment and they find they actually made wine out of the honey and the sap that came from this tree. And so it was a, it was an analogy here that showed that we flourish not like grass, but we get better and better and better as we get older and older and older as far as in our worship and in our praise and in our love for God. And then he notice he says next that they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. 
Now again, the cedars here were the most famous of all trees. There was no tree that was more famous than these cedars. Uh, kings from all nations desired these for construction. Solomon built the first temple out of them. Uh, the second temple was built out of them as well. But God describes these trees Himself in Ezekiel 31, verse 1 through 9. We'll go through these quickly. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in greatness? Behold, Assyria was like a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height they grew to be over a hundred feet tall. Its top was among the clouds. And then he goes on, he says, the waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So the river went around this tree. It didn't turn it over or uproot it. It towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in the boughs. Under its branches all the beasts of the field give birth to their young. Under its shadow lived all the great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness. In its length of its branches it was beautiful. For its roots went down to the abundant waters. What does that tell you about its roots? Deep, deep roots. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. What does that tell you about these trees? Nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plain trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. And so there you see, These trees grew to great height. Roots went deep down so that rivers went around it. They were stretched up into the clouds and their, their, their branches stretched over so that animals gave birth to their young under them. They were some 40 feet in girth. I mean, these were massive, beautiful trees, more famous than any tree in all the world even in the garden of God. And he says that this is the way that a righteous person, one that believes the work of God, and one that experiences the work of God, they grow this way. They flourish like the palm tree. They grow like the cedar of Lebanon. And their roots sink deep down. But do you know why they flourish and why they grow this way? Go with me to verse 13. This is the the heart of my message. And I'm fixing to close. They are planted in the house of the Lord. Planted. What does it mean to be planted? You are rooted in. This song is about believers being rooted, being planted in the house of God, in the courts of God. And because that's where they're planted, they grow like the cedars of Lebanon. They flourish like the palm trees and produce fruit even in their old age. Look what it keeps going with me to the end of the psalm. We'll finish it. In verse 14, they still bear fruit 
in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. I got to talk to Tommy Monday. He was still in the hospital for the flu. He hadn't come home yet. And I was talking to him. He, he was so excited about this auction. And I'm just going to tell you, I don't know of anybody that worked harder at this auction than Tommy and Martha. I mean, they went to business after business after business, and they worked and worked and worked for this auction. And Tommy was talking to me about the auction Monday. That's all he wanted to talk about was this auction Saturday. And I told him, I said, uh, or he, I said, Tommy, listen, if you're not able to make it, buddy, I said, listen, you have done, you and Martha have done so much. You have served, and y'all are... I, I just told him, I said, I've never seen servants the way that y'all serve. And he told me, he said, and Martha tells me this all the time too, he said, I just wish I could do more. And I love to see the fruit that came from Tommy and Martha, and it continues, and even in their old age. Because how many of you think when you get old, there's not much I can do anymore? Let me tell you something about a believer that's planted in the house of God. A believer that's planted in the courts of God. A believer that is made glad by the, the work of the Lord and they want to declare His praise for who He is. That believer only gets better with age. That believer only produces more fruit as they get older. And their fruit gets sweeter and sweeter. And I'm so thankful to be able to see that in the house of God. That as you age, you know, when I think about Mimo, you know how many people, you know how many of us, I'm going to put us all in the same category because she pretty much stands alone in this category. Do you know how many of us would skip church in a minute because of sickness or because of COVID or because of... But Mimo is 90... How old are you, Mimo? 91. She'd call us up and she'd say, why are you canceling church? <laughs> Nobody else shows up but a 91-year-old woman that if she gets it, it'd stop her. Because there's a joy in her that says, when we assemble together to declare praise to my God, I'm going to be there. And I don't care if nobody else shows up. You better know that when you look up, there's going to be one person come through that door. Meanwhile, the older they get, the sweeter the fruit is. And I'm so encouraged when I see those things. Convicted, encouraged. But it's because she's planted in the house of God. And she still bears fruit in old age. Tommy, Martha, Mary, so many of them, they still bear fruit and it only gets better with time. And so my question to you this morning is very simple. Where are you planted? No, I'm serious. I don't want you to just let this question go in and out. I want you to think about that. If you look at your life right now and say, okay, here's where I'm planted. Where would it be? Some of you say, well, I'm planted in my job. And that's okay. 
Yeah, you ought to be, especially if you're a husband or you're a provider for your household of some kind, you're the helpmate um, of the husband, uh, whatever the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. You need to be planted there. But at the same time, my question is, where is the place that takes priority over everything else in your life? That's what I'm talking about. You say, well, I'm planted in my kids. I'm planted in my grandbabies. Ain't nothing like them grandbabies, is it? Ain't nothing like them grandbabies. And you know what? You ought to love them. You ought to plant yourself in them. But there ought to be one place that you plant yourself more than any other place and it will take precedence over everything else that you do in your life. I'm planted in the house of God. And if you are, you will grow like a cedar in Lebanon and your roots will dig down deep so that when the river and the raging waters and the flood comes, it don't move you. You move the river. Y'all feel that? You move the river. It don't move you. You need to be so planted in the house of God that when the world looks at you, they see fruit dripping off you. They see, they see that, that you look like the symbols of victory and peace because that's why they took the palm leaves on triumphant Sunday and when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they laid them down because palm trees represented victory. It represented peace. And so people are to look at you and they are to see the peace of the Lord. People are to look at you and they are to see the victory of the Lord. People are to look at you and see because you're planted in the house of God, you flourish. You flourish. I just want you to examine yourself this morning and I want to ask you, are you like the righteous that is planted in the house of God and you are flourishing, and you are growing, and you have a gladness in you, and you want to declare and sing and gather with God's people? Or are you like the evil and the wicked that don't understand it, that don't have the joy, that don't have the gladness, that your life is all about this world, and you're planted somewhere else? And the problem is this. You may flourish for a season, but you're too foolish to understand that you are doomed for destruction. And if you're not planted, I'm just going to say this, not as a pastor. Listen, y'all got to believe me on this. I'm a different kind of pastor. I'm okay with two or three people in these seats. I, I'm good. <clears throat> Matter of fact, We'll save money on the electric. We'll go to my house and we'll sit in the living room. We'll study together. I'm okay with that. My goal is not to fill these seats. That's not my goal. My goal is to preach to you the truth of God's Word. That's my goal. If you like it, I'm glad. If you don't, I don't care. <laughs> So when I say this, I'm not just trying to get you to come to church. I'm being honest with you. If you can't look at your life today and see that I'm planted in the house of God and that I'm growing in my relationship with God and I'm flourishing and I'm producing fruit, can I just look at you and say you might actually be in the category of the wicked and don't even know it? 
Now that's just the truth. And I pray today that you would examine yourself. And if you are not planted there, and you don't have that gladness in your heart, I pray that you would humble yourself before Him and that you would cry out to Him and you would say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that everything else in this world takes precedence over you. My praise belongs to you. It is good for me to give you thanks for everything. It is good for me to sing praises to your name. It is good for me to declare that you are so full of mercy and so full of grace. And God, I owe my life to you. And I plant myself in your house. And I give myself to you. And if that's you today, there is no better time for you to do it. Not because of me. Not because of Nick. Not because of anything else. You know how many people at Nick's funeral, I'm just going to say this. You know how many people came to me and they said, Preacher, I'm coming back. I'm, on, I'm getting back. I'm coming back. Okay. That's awesome. But when the when the newness of this death wears off, where are you going to be then? Let me tell you, you're going to be right back where you were. Don't do this for me. Don't do this for Nick. You do this because He has made you glad. And you want to worship and praise Him because of what He's done for you.